The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 22 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name's Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, Peter, I saw an article online saying Sweden is being hit by a heat wave. Is that still happening? Uh, yeah, in combination with some rainstorms. So we, we're pretty damp. Um. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're having the same thing here in Denmark. Not exactly a heat wave, although possibly from, from a Danish perspective, it's, it's a heat wave. Um, but we've had what we call a cloud break uh, in uh, a couple of times here in Denmark, which I think... Uh, is in English is torrential rains really like coming down? Um, yeah, we, we've had those as well. Yeah, it hasn't happened. It hasn't hit Copenhagen just yet, but it's probably going to. I, I checked the um, weather forecast, and for the next week, it's like hot with a lot of rain, which is really great because uh, I started my vacation yesterday. So woohoo! Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, that's so, nice. Yeah, we uh it's it's going to be a lot of rain for at least the first week of my vacation. <laughs> Go me. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but we you can't... you do know what a good thing to do is when it rains a lot and you can't go outside. Oh, let me hear. What is it? Well, well you can listen to a podcast about the dark ages vampires. Ah, indeed. And speaking of that, while we might not be able to control the weather, let's talk about someone who can. Uh the book we're looking at today is House of Tremere. How's that for a transition? Mm. <laughs> Written by Robin D. Laws, a name I think will be familiar to a lot of role players uh, because he's done uh, quite a lot in like the last maybe five to ten years um, with with uh, indie games and the whole sort of um, theory behind role playing and stuff like that. And it's developed by Philip Abul. As always, we start with the cover. Now, last time I said the cover was too high fantasy, and one might make the same criticism here, though I think. It works for the subject matter, i.e. Clan Tremere. Now, I don't know if it's the scan I have, but the coloration looks a bit weird on, on the cover. But otherwise, I, I actually like it. Yeah, well, it's it's very Tremere, which means it is quite fantasy. Uh, but, but yeah, you have a captured gargoyle and uh, a trio of, uh, of robed mages slash uh, vampires uh, studying it so so yeah it, it it's suitably uh, cultish and ritualistic and and everything you could want from the Tremere. yeah though um this i don't know if this is the point where, where we should talk about that but one thing that i noticed throughout the the book is that they often talk about the various members of the, the Tremere wearing scholarly robes and the idea of scholarly mm. robes that comes from the fact that uh, in the Middle Ages, universities were basically places where you get, got educated to be a priest. So it's more like the priestly uh, or um, monastic vestments that then has be have become, in our mindset, the idea that wizards and other scholars wear robes. But uh, it's it's not necessarily a thing at in 1197 that just because you're knowledgeable, you wear a robe. 
Yeah, I, I'd say that would depend on, on what you're doing as a scholar, because one of the reasons why, and it, it goes for, for the clergy as well, one of the reasons why he often uh, wore robes was because the buildings that they, they worked in and lived in were often of stone and quite cold. And, and so, and especially if you're a student or a scholar and you have to sit around studying, it's going to get quite cold. And if you have a lot of books around, you don't want like open braziers and stuff because that's a fire hazard and you don't uh. want to burn your books. So, <laughs> uh, so you would, you would wear um, heavy ropes instead. And I, I really wouldn't call the kind of, of hoods and cloaks that the people on the cover are wearing in any way scholarly. It's, it's more, no. <laughs> it's more fantasy wizard than anything. Yeah, and it's kind of fun because, uh, and I'm going to make these connections quite a bit, but obviously Clan Tremere comes from the Osmagica role-playing game where you had uh, House Tremere within the Order of Hermes. And uh, they were never the most uh, traditional robe-wearing wizard kind of, of house. It was quite often uh, them that wore different kinds of outfits. Uh, yeah. I remember in, I think it was second edition, um, the the Tremere template was actually wearing light armor and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of fun that they've transitioned into the whole robe thing here. But uh, obviously, it, it isn't a continuation of Ars Magica. But as an Ars Magica fan, I can't help constantly making connections back to that. But uh, it, it's it's going to happen a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. It's... Okay, so as for the interior art, uh, it's a mixed bag. I usually talk about weapons and armor, but here there's only really one picture which has a guy with a comically oversized double-headed two-handed axe yeah. and some yeah some weird ahistoric armor in his description it says he wears a breastplate which obviously uh well technically breastplates had existed which were bronze breastplates worn by uh greek hoplites but um but but it in, in 1197 you know, people had stopped wearing bronze breastplates and you hadn't started wearing wearing iron breastplates yet. Uh, and he has a shield strapped to his forearm. So so he just looks a bit silly. Yeah, yeah, he uh, does. It's, it, yeah, I, I don't know what they were going for because it doesn't really no. work. Uh, there is there is a picture on, on page 30, though, which I really like, actually. And it depicts what I assume is, is a smidge... Uh, knight or warrior fighting of gargoyles, and and he's wearing, oh, yeah. he's wearing, he's carrying not only a, quite a nice sword for the circumstances, but he's he's also wearing a, a very nice 14th century globe breastplate, which is a very nice 14th century breastplate, but a couple of centuries too early. Uh, what what he is wearing though is is kind of this spiked. Um, is it van braces on the arms, or is it is that on? Uh, the van braces are on the forearms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah so I, I always get those confused. So he's wearing he's wearing van braces that have the kind of of um, heavy metal barbarian fantasy spikes on them. But I would say that and and li listen carefully because I will probably only say this once. For once, I think those actually make sense uh, because. Uh, if if you look at the kind of creatures they're fighting, uh, there it's it's uh, gargoyles who want to get into close combat with you. And and yeah. if you look at the kind of colors that hunting dogs that you used uh, against wolves or boars and stuff like uh, animals like that, they would often wear 
collars with, with huge spikes on them to, to protect the, the neck of the dogs from, from the, uh, the prey animals. And I'm, I'm thinking that if, uh, if, if this vampire, because he isn't wearing a shield, but if, if he needs to, to get something spiky between himself and, and the teeth of, uh, of his enemy, then this would actually work in a way it it would be very unpractical for anything else because those spikes would would get in touch with something and you wouldn't really be able to do anything but fighting if you were the, those kinds of lambraces. But like for once, I'm actually going to say that that the fantasy spikes aren't com- completely ridiculous. Uh, yeah, exactly. Especially since his opponents aren't wearing any armor. Yeah. Uh, so so you you can always like you said interpose them against naked flesh. Yeah, or shove them into the mouth or something, and and of course yeah. these aren't the, the kind of huge ten-inch uh, spikes that you see on, on shoulder pads sometimes, but it's kind of short, like an inch or so. So, uh, yeah, it, it 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 works. You're quite right, and I mean there are a lot of good pieces uh, in in this book. There are some that are a bit like eh, not nothing special. Uh, I like a lot of the character portraits uh, at at the. Um, in the second half of the book, uh, but the torture porn picture on page one twelve is just bad. Yeah, uh, yeah, we we didn't we didn't need that one. Um, I figure you might have something to say about how many of the characters in the character portraits are dressed because holy crap! Yeah, it's well, well, my my biggest problem with the with the character portraits isn't really how they're dressed. It's it's that the None of them really look like like vampire characters. Really, it's it's. Ah. I, I think they look more. A, f- a few of them do do, but all in all, it's. I feel, and and I'm gonna come back to this. I feel that this this book feels very much like like a fantasy dungeon crawl, uh, but set in a uh, set in the dark ages uh, for for world of darkness, but. But yeah, some of the clothes are are just ridiculous. Like for example, uh, on page ninety nine, you have Tosia, the Holy Mother, who's supposed to be a very oh. religious person, oh, and she she has a cleavage that I wouldn't say is very Christian for the time. Um, and and a lot of the characters, uh, you also have someone who who looks to have escaped from from like the second edition D and D Bard's Guide on. On page ninety-seven, yeah. because he has the, the kind of uh, frilly collar and and uh, a pointed hat with feathers in it, and uh, and nineteenth-century epaulets on his shoulders, and and it's yeah, it's it's very weird. Um, on page ninety-six, you have someone who looks like he's cosplaying Gaston from from uh, Beauty and the Beast, the Disney version. Um, and Though nobody disses Gaston, he's amazing. Yeah, but this cosplayer <laughs> isn't, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, all, all in all, um, you you have the Egyptian guy who's wearing an ankh upside down, and I don't think I, I don't know why he would do that. Uh, but but yeah, the, because he is a rebel. Yeah, yeah, of course he must be. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, one one of the few I really like is Menda Kamina on page um, eighty nine because she's wearing what is looks more or less like like traditional nuns' habits with blood spatters all over it. But but yeah, it's it, it looks a lot of these characters look kind of 
they they do have personality and stuff like that, which I sometimes complain about. But they they look more like kind of Disney versions of 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 uh, I don't know, uh, um, witches cabal or something because. They, yeah. they, a lot of them look slightly confused, and as you mentioned, the guy with the huge, strange axe and and breastplate and and everything, he he also looks like uh, the the villainous Disney prince. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Very, very little about most of the character portraits really says, you know, vampire. Mm. You you're you're not getting. It, it it doesn't have to be that they're drawn with fangs out and everything, but there's this very little atmosphere surrounding yeah. them that makes you really think that, okay, these are Tremere vampires. And obviously, I mean, they haven't been vampires for that long and they're new to it. But still, I kind of wish that they, they'd worked a little bit more on, on, on that. Yeah, well, um, they, they completely lack the kind of gothic horror feel to them. Um, yeah. the, the clothing styles as well, some of them kind of look more more like yeah fantasy version of, of later centuries where where you have a lot of puffed and slashed clothing and and hats with tassels and stuff like that so uh, but yeah the the rest of the interior art i, I really like and, and we do have quite a lot of of uh tremere with the wearing wearing um, the more actually scholarly robes and and also hats uh, that are appropriate and and the way everything is described you you would want some warm clothes when walking around the place that this this book is about yeah so uh we start with an intro story and like the uh, one in ash and thief which we covered last time uh, it is a story of an intruder failing his mission um so i i thought it was kind of funny that they basically have the uh the same uh, sort of thing with an intruder mm. failing his mission and ending with having his brain impaled. Um, it's it's a it's an <laughs> interesting coincidence. I think it's it's decent enough though. I think it tries a little too much to be to be shocking. Yeah. Uh, and once again, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of intro stories. But what did you think of it? Yeah, I I agree. Uh, it's I, I do like the kind of characterization that you get from the intruder uh, and how. He basically he's he's built built up to fail basically and and he does mm. that spectacularly but but yeah it's it's a bit over the top in the end um, I I do like the that the picture of him he's he's wearing this kind of checkered um, um, tunic or or jacket which would again be in fashion a couple of uh, hundred years later uh, but but yeah it's it's actually quite well um, well drawn and accurate and he seems to be wearing a belt pouch and hose uh, instead of, of trousers or pants so so that was nice uh, yeah. but but yeah I, I agree the the um, interest stories are quite often a bit hit and miss yeah so the introduction itself is longer than usual but I think it does a great job of introducing the book and especially I especially like the advice on how to include the core matter of this book which is the Chantry of Sirius mm -hmm. because obviously you know if you're if you're not involving the Tremere uh, quite heavily in your story then then how, how are you going to use it so I think the the intro accomplishes what it's supposed to do yeah absolutely <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, chapter one is like uh, a lot of the chapters in this book it told us an in-character piece. And when I was reading it, I suddenly realized why I probably don't like this uh, as much as I like them not being in-character pieces and why intro stories rarely do it for me, especially if uh, all or much of the rest of the book is written in character. Uh, and that is, if I'd wanted a novel, I would have bought a novel. Yeah. Intro stories are okay, but when most of the rest of the book is also a story, then it begins to be a bit annoying, at least to me. I I prefer less in-character stuff, but given how much of of in, of it, the in-character stuff that White Wolf did in their books, I, I don't know if I'm the minority here. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. It's um, And, and uh, I see what you mean. Uh, I, I do think that most of this is, is quite well written, but, but as you say, that if... It it becomes not only a problem of of it being more of a fiction book than than well it's not a fact book since it's it's a role playing game but but <laughs> you you kind of want the the hard facts about the the thing that the book is about uh, and I I definitely wouldn't have a problem if they made just like a splat page with with and they often do in this game where with it's kind of like a handwritten letter or a note from. Um, f- from one person to another, I I like those more than when it goes on and on because if it's badly written, then you're gonna have a lot of information that is badly written, and especially just like if if I want to find a specific piece of information as as the storyteller, and I want to know like yeah where does this person live or or what does this person think about this other person, I I don't want to have to go through like a, a three-page monologue from someone else just to find what I'm looking for. Um, and I still yeah. haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh, <laughs> I was I was waiting for that one. I was waiting for that one. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're kind of predictable sometimes. Uh, but, yeah. but yeah, it's it's like sometimes you just want to have hard facts or, or a chart or of some kind. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it doesn't help that, uh, especially at this time, White Wolf books are notorious for either not having or having very poor uh, indices in the back. Yeah. So it can, as, as you said, and I, I didn't even think about that, but you're right, it can make it really, really hard to find very specific information. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, this, this chapter is about the construction of the Chantry of Seoris and the creation of Clan Tremere within. Um, it is really well written as you you said and I think it helps that the subject matter is very interesting like how was it created and how what happened within Seuris as uh, the leadership of House Tremere turned into Clan Tremere Um, so while I might have done without the frame of it being a story told by a character I still really like the chapter and one thing that I especially liked was in the beginning when they create Seoris you see that uh, magic has a price uh, in the form of of actually sacrificing a part of your body but at the same time you see how Clan Tremere sorry House Tremere at this point but later Clan Tremere they do the whole, we may have to sacrifice something, but we're cheating, where you have uh, Goratrix cutting off his genitalia, but the author noting that he can use magic to grow it back. Yeah. So they're making a sacrifice, but they're kind of cheating. Very, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it really fits with with the characterization of the house and clan of Tremere. Yeah, exactly. They, they want to be immortal, but they don't really want to pay the price. And 
but but yeah, it's uh, I I agree with you that it's it's a good characterization of, of everything and and the story itself is quite interesting. Uh, to to go back to something I touched on previously, I I think that this is a very good book if you kind of like the subject, but if you're not interested in 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 vampiric wizards and you probably wouldn't buy the book if you weren't to be perfectly honest but it's it's very much a fantasy book uh, for me at least and it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing but you you kind of have to be aware of of just how fantastical it is and we're going to touch upon it later when with the uh, magical creatures and creations of, yeah. of the tremere uh, but as like like as as a role playing book, it's very well written, and I really like it from that aspect. Yeah, I think the big difference here is that um, you've you've never played as Magicka, right? No, have you no, ever even read any of it? I might have, but not really that I remember. Yeah. Whereas I come from the point where I I played a very long as Magicka Chronicle. I've read it, so I think it's really good that we have two different approaches to this book because you're coming from it uh you're coming to it from the point of not having the asmagica background i'm coming from having the asmagica background and i think it's written from the point of view of whoever's uh, writing it probably knew asmagica or was was given enough information about asmagica to make the links and as someone who knows that game I'm sitting here going, ah, yeah, I, I see the connections. Mm, so it's yeah. it's kind of your, it's it's unfortunate that you are losing out on some of the things in this book if you haven't gotten into Ars Magica. And when when I look at it from the Ars Magica point of view, I'm like, yeah, this makes total sense, and the fantastical elements really fit in with the way Ars Magica is yeah, okay, um, yeah. portrayed. So so it's it. I think it might be a bit of a failing of the book that they have decided to tie it in so closely with a game that many of the people reading the book don't know. So so yeah. they lack that kind of, of connection. Mm. Um, it's it's like watching a Marvel movie if you haven't watched a lot of the uh, the previous movies. Yeah, okay. You might yeah. miss a lot of, of, of in stuff there. So I, I think that's a, a criticism we can make of the book is that, you know, you shouldn't have had to know Ars Magica in order to really get the the things that they are bringing up in this book. Yeah, that's that's a valid point, and I'll I'll buy that for a dollar. But but yeah, I, <laughs> I, I I can see like if you know the rest of it, and I'm guessing that if you're a big um, um, mage player as well, there's probably a lot of things that uh, that you find interesting with the connections to the to the House of uh, Hermes and and the other. Uh, traditions that that they touch upon. Yeah, um, I mean, we I th I think we have some some listeners who are who are into mage. So let us know how mm, yeah. how does this tie into uh, to mage? Are you sitting here noticing Easter eggs and and little connections, or was this written at a time where the connection wasn't that, that strong? Um, yeah. So anyway, chapter two, like chapter one, is written in character, and it concerns itself with the land surrounding Seoris. It is quite short, uh, and I like that they don't try to stretch it out, since it doesn't actually need to be any longer. Like the previous chapter, it's well written, but I think the writer un underestimates the travel times, especially river travel. Um, also, it mentions firing arrows. It does that in a couple of yeah. places, rather than shooting them. Yeah. And this is just a minor historical accuracy. But we are talking about history, and obviously, you don't fire arrows because 
you fire firearms, mm. and then that's kind of taken yeah, you, over. You shoot arrows um, or lose them. Yeah, exactly. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I think this is a, a nice sort of uh, overview of what are the lands surrounding surrounding Sirius. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, I I like the way that it's it's written in a way that you could easily make a a game or at least a few sessions of, of just getting there where you have like the hazards and the random encounters and stuff like that where you can run into uh, not only Tremere patrols but perhaps also uh, Tsimish raiding parties or perhaps even werewolves and, and stuff like that. It's it's um, it, it sets you up very much for uh, for basically starting out somewhere and, and going on a journey to, um, I don't think we should call it a castle, but to Sioris, the, uh, the Chantry. Uh, but again, it, it feels very much more like a fantasy quest than, than a vampire adventure. And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing because I think I'm going to use a lot of this or a lot of stuff from this book if I ever run a suitable fantasy game. But uh, <laughs> it's like, I, I feel like they, they had a really good idea, but for a completely different game. Um, but but overall, I, I do like, besides, like you mentioned, the... Um, the uh, the traveling times are a bit off, but the way it's described as like yeah, you follow this river and then you go past a uh, a village where where the wom- women can only speak in curses. Uh, that's that's a bit sexist, but it's also uh, I, I think it was an interesting way of describing it. You could just change it to where where the people only speak in curses. Curses. Yeah. Uh, and and so you you do get a very good feel for the entire surrounding area and and what this place is about and what it's like to travel here. Yeah, Uh, I don't know if this was written specifically with Transylvania Chronicles in mind, but I remember that in the first book of Transylvania Chronicles, at one point the characters are tasked with going to Seoris and covertly uh, doing something Mm. there. I won't spoil it it if anyone's going to be playing it, but but, um, this is a really cool thing to have if you want to expand upon the whole th- idea of going to Sirius and and doing your uh, your job. So I'm definitely going to be showing this to uh, to my wife who's running Transylvania Chronicles mm-hmm. at the moment so that she can decide whether or not she wants to uh, to incorporate this or if she just wants to make the whole journey there a, a shorter thing. Um, so so it 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 touches upon the whole idea that this is more of a tie in to to Transylvania Chronicles than maybe a standalone book. I think it might have been written sort of as a thing for yeah. if someone's playing Transylvania Chronicles, either a- as the Tsimish faction with Tremere being the enemy or as the Tremere faction, you really want this book. So, yeah, they do make know. a lot of references to the Transylvania Chronicles. So Yeah, yeah. it was the big thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, chapter three, once again, is another short chapter, uh, this time about the inner workings of Seoris. Some might find it a big, bit dry, but I really liked it. Uh, it gives us a look on, at how things function for both mortals and canines, um, how the Chantry is defended, how the canines get their blood, uh, etc. Uh, so, in this chapter, yeah, good things all around, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's written uh, as a report from the, the Castellan Kudaferum, uh, uh, and I love how they portray him as kind of a dick, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's kind of like this this 
sniveling servile, servile um, butt-licker to uh, to his master Etrius, and he's like, yeah, I. I'm I'm doing all of these things for you, but uh, I I would do an even better job if you would just tell the others that they have to respect me more. And come on, I respect I am my the stone, goddamn it, and, <laughs> and they should respect my authority. Yeah, uh, and and he's he's kind of complaining about everyone, and and again, you you really get a feel of what kind of backstabbing conspiratorial assholes the the Tremere are because it's a lot of. Uh, he, he mentioned more than once that, yeah, there are people who doesn't really do their jobs and, well, I don't really want to name names, but these people's, hello, you should really punish them because they're being mean to me and I had to go and visit one of them instead of they them coming to me and I shouldn't have to because I'm the Castellan. Um, and I'm, I haven't counted, but there are more than once where where he writes that, yeah, they should really, like, I'm the Castellan and they should respect me. Uh. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I like about both this chapter and the previous chapter, and once again, I'm going back to Osmagica, but it it's um, very reminiscent of what happens in Osmagica when you have a Chantry and you start figuring out, well, how are we going to defend the lands around us? Yeah. How are we going to get things working in the Chantry? And, and, I think that's why it, it makes a lot of sense also because up until the the uh, vampires uh, arrived or were made there, it, it was a functioning chantry of wizards. So it's it's nice to get an insight into, well, how did that actually work? Uh, and and it, it does tie in also to with how uh, a mortal court of the times would work. Uh, obviously, how Tremere was known for being extremely... Uh, backstabby and and political but mortal courts were as well so this you can translate some of this into a mortal court as well yeah i i completely agree and and it has has a lot of of practical advice i would say like how if if you're uh, if you're waging a more or less constant war you you're gonna run out of locals to recruit so you're gonna have to recruit mercenaries from abroad and and how do you do that and what what kind of consequences does that have like for example you're not going to get the best of the best you're going to get basically the the bottom of the barrel but then again if, mm. if all you need is is cannon fodder basically then that's not necessarily a bad thing uh but at the same time and and again going back to the kind of adventure side of it uh you you get these kind of ideas on how an intruder would probably be able to sneak in disguised as, as a new recruit because there are so many people who who don't know each other and and people are coming and going out and getting killed or experimented on or punished uh, by by being experimented on and and stuff <laughs> like that so it, it has quite a lot of um of, of opportunities like storytelling seeds that you could easily use for like yeah do you, if for example, like you mentioned in your game where you had to go there, there there isn't just the one way of getting into the Chantry. You have a bunch of different ways and you get them. They're explained to you uh, in, in quite detail. So you, you have options and that's that's always nice where, where the players get to choose for themselves what they want to do, basically. 
Yeah. So chapter four takes a look at the structure of Seoris itself, uh, and it includes maps uh, and room descriptions. Now this might feel a bit D&D to some, but uh, I really like it, and the book is called House of Tremere, yeah. so I think it's okay that we get this uh, th these maps. Um, there's a lot of information here, and it's very detailed, so I'm just going to give uh, a few of my comments. Yeah. Uh, like, like I said, it's useful, um, these these maps, if, if both of you are playing a Tremere Chronicles where the characters visit series, or if you are enemies who plan to infiltrate or attack, then the Game Master can use these. However, I do have a few complaints, uh, the first of which is the description of the Chantry being very dark because the windows have been sealed up after some of the uh, the leadership became vampires and no torches are allowed because open flames everyone has to walk around with with lanterns and stuff like this i uh, you'd think it'd be an easy matter for mortal mages to just yeah. create permanent light yeah uh, light is a cantrip no wait wrong game uh. <laughs> <laughs> well uh it's it's the ars magica equivalent of a cantrip because if I recall my Ars Magica correctly, it is a level 5 working, which is the lowest working you can possibly do, which means creating permanent fire, uh, fireless light is trivially easy. Hmm, yeah. uh, they, they talk about uh, Vs, the, uh, uh, the magical power um, in physical form that Mortal Mages uses, and it uses the smallest part of Vs you can actually use to create permanent uh, fireless light, yeah. and I'm just thinking, even before the vampires, um, when the sun went down, you know, yeah. you'd have to use fire to to uh, to see by, and that is horrendously dangerous around books and stuff. But uh, trust me, mages will want to read at any time during night or day. Yeah. So I just think that that it's weird that there isn't any non-fire magical light in there yeah i, I haven't um, thought about that actually it's it's a very good yeah. point uh they also waste a lot of space on corridors yeah. it's a very inefficient design that builders of the time would never conceive of and they do say that they bring in master builders to help design it and there's a lot of corridors that uh, they go past a door and then they end at a wall where you know instead you just make the um yeah make the rooms bigger make the room a, lit a little bit bigger and so a lot a lot a lot of space inside is wasted on corridors and i think this might be a relic of uh sort of dungeon design of the time that uh that had a lot of corridors that you can move through and check for traps and whatever yeah, yeah. um so so but but if if you want this to be a sort a more realistic uh medieval structure designed by people used to designing medieval structures you would have a lot less corridors you would have rooms leading into rooms you'd have very short corridors and you would never have a corridor that didn't go anywhere rooms would just be extended yeah. right after the door yeah that's, that's uh, a very good so, point and finally there's the placement of the smithy yeah. <laughs> i was going to talk about <laughs> that as well so let's see it's not only on the second floor, which means that everything that has to go into the smithy has to be transported up narrow stairs, but it's inside. Yeah. Oh, good lord. Yeah. That is a recipe for disaster. Mm. That much fire and heat inside the structure. I mean, you don't have to be any kind of genius to realize the problems. Yes, they say that, that Seoris is made of stone, but there is still going to be a lot of interior wood. Yeah. Um, so, 
Oh boy. Um, it also mentions that the Chantry goldsmith works here, but a goldsmith needs a very different setup from a blacksmith, so he really should have his own workshop. Yeah, he should. Uh, it's, it's quite a large smithy, though, so so it probably might have room somewhere in a corner. But but yeah, I I agree. Uh, and could you imagine the goldsmith having to work? To the sound of someone hammering all the time. Yeah, I think he'd be driven nuts. Yeah, well, it seems that most of the inhabitants of this place are already crazy in one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's that's true. Like, like you mentioned, not not only is it inside, which is a huge fire hazard, but but also, and a, a lot of the things that is strange about this place could probably just be hand weighed with well wizards did it. So it it's built in what five years, which is quite an undertaking for such yeah. a huge place in such a remote place. But again, wizards did it. Uh, structures like this could take decades or even hundreds of years. Like most most medieval cathedrals in Europe took at least a couple of centuries uh, to finish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the Sagrada right, Familia in, in Barcelona uh, still isn't finished. It's been going <laughs> on for... So even with modern technologies it can take a lot of time yeah. to finish it but but yeah you said that wizards did it because they do mention that etrius who's a master of earth magic yeah. help creates it but he helps create it uh alongside mortal yeah, builders it, who would have never put a smithy on no. the second floor inside yeah exactly so, uh, so you would you, first of all you would just want it outside for for safety reasons second of all if you're going to put it inside, you don't want it on the second floor because structurally you're going to have to reinforce that floor a lot more. Uh, to, to take a modern example, anyone who works in a place where, where you have a huge archive with, with like paper files, paper weighs a ton. So, so you, you kind of have to, in some places, you have to have reinforced walls and, and concrete floors, even if you're down on ground level, because if, if you have a room full of paper in, uh, in these cabinets, who are often quite safe-like, you, you, you need something structurally sound to, to place it on. So if you put it on the, on the second floor, you're basically going to have to reinforce that so much that it is as strong as the ground floor. Uh, and as you mentioned, you're also going to have to carry everything up. And of course, you have strong ghouls and vampires who can do it. But carrying, you're going to need a lot of, lot of coal to just uh, fuel the everything. Uh, and it takes yeah. a lot of coal. So you're going to have to have people carrying it all through uh, those corridors. And you're going to drag like dust and ashes all through. So you have the, the cleaning problem as well. Uh, if if you wanna if you want to bring an anvil up, that's gonna weigh a lot, and you're gonna have to bring that up as well. And th that's one you of the things that you have to bring the stock iron up. Yeah, there. exactly. So so it's 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 quite a interesting place. They do put it in a corner instead of in the middle yeah, of the exactly. thing. Yeah, which... exactly. they place it along an outside yeah. wall. Which is at least something because the kitchen is also on the second floor, yeah. but it's at the center yeah. of the tower. So I'm wondering where the hell all the smoke smoke from the cooking yeah, fire is because go. you didn't really have chimneys uh, and stoves in in the more modern sense. So yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, thing. Yeah, and I you know I know it's a magician's tower, but they specifically say that they bring in great uh, and skilled mortal builders yeah. to help build it, and they would never design it that way. And also. Um, you could say, well, obviously it's it's a wizard's tower, so they just use their magic. But would you really use your magic on something so trivial yeah. as to 
uh, enhance the smithy and the and make sure the kitchens aren't smoky when all you had to do was redesign the castle the way your um, your mortal builders asks you to redesign it so that you would have the the smithy as a separate thing and the kitchens uh, probably on the ground floor you could have them on the second floor if you really wanted to but definitely along an outside wall so you could get rid of all the smoke yeah it's that is very weird for for so many reasons uh and like like you mentioned it's why why waste if if you can't even use your magic to get proper lighting why would you want to spend it on or waste it on uh on on just making sure that the smoke isn't getting everywhere uh yeah. but yeah that's that's probably the biggest uh reason or biggest complaint i have about the layout there are some other things like the fact that there aren't any uh, or at least doesn't seem to be any guard houses uh, on the bottom floor or outside like all of the barracks are on the second floor and if someone attacks from the ground floor it's going to take a while to run downstairs uh, they might just be thinking we're going to sacrifice the ground floor, yeah. floor and hold the second floor, but then you have the problem. Well, what if they set yeah, fire exactly. to the ground well, floor? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Then people can just use that second floor or ground floor to to ruin things. The stairs themselves uh, aren't uh, there. There aren't uh, spiral staircases, which not all staircases in in medieval castles were spiral staircases. But from a defensive point of view. It's often a good thing to have those, and one would think again with the master builders that they would think of that. Um, yeah, the the lack of windows, I can understand why you would uh, board up most of the windows, but again, if if you want to keep a lookout, uh, because the, it doesn't seem to have like a roof where you can stand guard on. There there are some fake uh, towers and turrets on the outside of. Um, of, of the building, but it, they are described as, as being fake and kind of break away. So if, if an intruder tries to land on them, it's, it's just going to crumble. Uh, but still, you're, you're blinding yourself. And you could probably explain it away with, again, them using magic for scrying or something. But if nothing else, you would probably want to have some, some kind of uh, holes for or windows for the archers to shoot through if, if you're getting attacked. So... Yeah, exactly. Uh, at least have some openable uh, windows. Yeah. Uh, and also the torture chamber mentions an Iron Lady, which I assume is supposed to be an Iron Maiden. Yeah. And although I am an Iron Maiden fan, they didn't exist at the time. Yeah. Neither the band nor the torture. Yeah, implement. exactly. <laughs> uh, so, but but yeah, the, those are one of the few weird things uh, with with the, yeah. everything I... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's anything more. We, we might come back to it. Uh, but but yeah, it's like you said, it, it feels very much like a dungeon crawl. And, and again, uh, it's it, it does. And not necessarily in a bad way, but in, in a very, at least for me, non-vampire non way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously they they do come from uh, mortals, mortal wizards, but uh, and I have, I mean, dungeon crawls, they are inspired in some way by obviously the European Middle Ages, and mm -hmm. so if they wanted to do sort of a Dark Ages vampire spin on the idea of a dungeon crawl, in that you might want to use Seoris as the yeah. dungeon for someone who are enemy uh, who are enemies of the Tremere. The idea is solid enough. I just wish that they then made 
a structure that w- made more sense from a yeah. medieval point of view. Yeah. Like you mentioned, uh, they're blinding themselves, they're trusting their breakaway uh, parapets mm. and Atreus's gorge mm. way too much, and with the whole thing with the smithy and the kitchens and stuff like that, um, a little more effort could have been put into making it feel a lot more like a medieval... Well, it's not a castle because it's a tower, yeah. but a lot of medieval, what we call castles, were actually just big towers. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, it's it's a fantastical dungeon crawl. It's, it's just that there are a few things that doesn't make sense from any perspective. Uh, like, for example, you, you have... Uh, you have the guest rooms on the fifth floor, and and kind of the the masters or or the uh, the big sevens, the the leaders uh, have their quarters on the fourth floor, which means that the guests have to pass through the floor uh, that should be the most guarded to get to their own yeah. rooms, which really doesn't make sense. Uh, you also have a lot of laboratories on high up, and it's kind of the same. Uh, with those as as with the smithy that it's it's probably going to well, be in, a lot in, of in that ca- dangerous stuff you're going to need a lot of materials yeah. and everything but has in that to case be... they do have an excuse for why they have them up there because their original labs which were underground yeah. got overrun by yeah hell. that's that's <laughs> that's a good point but but at least put them like i i wouldn't want the guest lab to be over uh, one of the guest labs is pretty much over Goratrix's chamber, and Ooh, yeah, <laughs> like I wouldn't trust my guests even if I were like Goratrix definitely shouldn't trust his. Uh, oh but, yeah, definitely. But yeah, none, none of the others should really as well because if something goes wrong, you're gonna have the ceiling collapse and and you're gonna have someone's weird experiments in your bed basically. So yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, just just move the floors around a bit and and change, move the ro- rooms around as well so they make more sense. Uh, I I yeah. do like the fact that they say that they haven't detailed the sixth floor. So if like just put whatever you need up there, if you need more guest chambers or if you need whatever, maybe you can put an observatory up there or something or at least a, a like a, a roof balcony or something. Yeah. Also, one thing that I do like, that I really like here is that it's not like a sprawling castle. It's not like a, a big manor. Mm. It's not even a round tower. It is a big yeah. square tower. That I really like uh, because obviously it was it was built in like the 10th century. And at that point, if somebody was building uh, a, a big structure in the middle of Transylvania, then the easiest thing would be a big square tower. Yeah. And it's the one thing that would make sense. It would be the one thing that would be quick easy and functional yeah. to build and they did want the chantry down quickly yeah exactly so that that does make a lot of sense that's a very good point yeah so uh chapter five is about the characters of series mortal or otherwise uh there's a fair share of npcs and i generally like this chapter as they are usually well written some of them are a bit weird <laughs> uh, and they come with a lot of plot hooks in their personalities backgrounds and alliances uh, and once again as a fan of Ars Magica it's fun to see in the character Paul Cordwood a link to House uh, Dietne uh, which plays a very very important part in the Ars Magica backstory so I was just like hey yeah. it's cool <laughs> okay, it's mentioned yeah. here <laughs> uh, they make a small mistake in a number of characters who have a thematogy rating higher than any path rating that they have so they might have a thematic rating of four or five but no individual path rating of four or five, which oh, yeah. uh, is a, a minor thing. But otherwise, yeah. I I don't have much more to say here, really. 
Uh, no, I I do like the the fact that they they have not only uh, vampires but also mortal mages and, and ghouls and everything, and it gives it gives a lot of um, of of like character to the entire thing. It feels like a living place, and it feels very uh, well thought through and and detailed, uh, and and you get. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it it it's a very usable place. You don't really have to do too much. You can always throw in some more characters if you want, but but you have what you need. Um, I'm I'm just going to mention or talk a bit about Etrius, uh, the the Lord of Sciores, because <laughs> I, he's, I thought you might. I thought you might. Yeah, because he's 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 uh, said to be born outside of Gothenburg, Sweden, in in 850. Uh, the only problem <clears> is that. Gothenburg wasn't really around until the 1600s. Uh, there, there were settlements in in that area, uh, but you had Lördöse and then New Lördöse, and then you had a lot of other places that, that were in the area. But but Gothenburg itself wasn't around. Um, and I, and and what's interesting is that like that area was just like a small, about 10 miles wide corridor uh, between. Uh, Danish um, Danish Halland in the south and Norwegian Bohusland in in the north, which then uh, Sweden conquered again in the 1600s. But but like yeah, if if he would he might have been a Dane or a Norwegian if depending on for how far outside of Gothenburg he was born. Um, yeah. The, the second thing I, I want to uh, mention about him is that I. Uh, I don't really understand what his name is supposed to be because his mortal name was what was it Ingvar I think which is a classical Swedish Norse name and then he changed yeah. it uh, because of the uh, because it becomes a Christian so he changed it, uh, it changes it to Etrius which as far as I know doesn't mean anything but it sounds fairly Latin uh, and what I would have loved because like Latinizing your name was was a thing for many centuries. Oh yeah. So you, oh, you, yes. you have, for example, um, Olaf Pettersson, who became Olaus Petri, uh, which was a dude in in 16th century Sweden. He he was a, one of the movers and shakers. Uh, Carl von Linnea, who everyone knows, he uh, he actually yeah. did the other way around. He was born as Carl Linnaeus, which is a Latinized uh, name, and uh, and. And, and quite often it was probably done because if you go abroad to study and just say to someone that your name is Olaf Pettersson, no one is going to be able to pronounce it because they don't speak Swedish. But most people... But everybody speaks yeah, Latin. Exactly. So, so just Latinize it. At least the learned Yeah, exactly. Ones, the, the scholars that you're going to hang out with anyway. So so it does make sense. But it, it yeah. Arguably, your your greatest king ever is, is yeah, known under a exactly. Latin name. Exactly. Gustavus Adolphus. Uh, and uh, or at least the most famous, depending on 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 <laughs> what outlook you have on it. Uh, but but yeah, it's I would love to have seen them Latinizing his actual name. Uh, I don't really have a good guess what it would be. Uh, so Ingvar Ingvarus. I yeah, they, that really would know. be the easiest. The, the name Ingvar Ing is probably an ancient Norse god, and you have this thing. Uh, uh, Ingvar as well is a is a variant of it, and, and Var could mean man or servant or warrior. Uh, so so yeah, the, the easiest would probably just be to to Ingvarius it uh, just just ah, yeah. Way. yeah yeah uh, at the eye as well. 
but but yeah, it's j- just a small point that that modern Swedish geography is nothing like medieval Swedish geography. No, exactly. I mean, the the like you said, it it's pretty much uh, Gothenburg is pretty much located where Norway and Denmark met. Yeah in what is today southern Sweden. Yeah. Things have changed a lot uh, in that area because we kept going to war with each yeah. other. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, one thing that I really like here is their war master. His name escapes me at the moment. Uh, the guy with the ridiculous yeah, uh, two-handed axe. Yeah, it's Isorias or something. Let me see. Yeah. Isora. Uh, where, yeah. Isora, yeah. Where he doesn't have any thaumatogy and it's mentioned in his fate that he never learns thaumatogy. And it's really nice because there is this focus uh, when it comes to Clan Tremere on the fact that they have thematogy and everyone has to have thematogy and you, when you play one, ooh, you're going for as much thematogy as possible. But this shows that at this time they are kind of desperate and they will embrace people with no magical talent who may not uh, have the inclination or even the ability yeah. to learn thematogy. So I think he's a really nice character for showing that they can't afford to only embrace people with a magical talent they're going to have to embrace people with other talents. yeah exactly they they're gonna get who they need and and as as we mentioned with the mercenaries that they hide it they don't get the best they get what they can get uh, and and so even if this guy never learns I don't know. Do can he even read? I don't know if it mentioned that, but he he probably learns it through the centuries. But but like yeah, his his job isn't to be a, a wizard or a magician. His job is to be their their general, and he apparently does a very good job at it. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, the, you know, interesting characters um, and and a few a few ge- geographical mistakes mm. which. <laughs> I think tend to be a bit common because I, I think a lot of people just looked at at mod, uh, modern maps when they were yeah. uh, sort of doing people's background and uh, sometimes it works. For example, the the British Isles have pretty much been the British Isles for yeah. a long time. York has been but around then, for quite some time, for example. Exactly, but but if you look at Scandinavia, just be aware that the borders have shifted yeah. a lot over the time yeah. and what is today southern Sweden for most of history, was actually considered part of Denmark. Um, So, chapter 6 has systems for creating new thaumatogy paths and rituals, which seems appropriate enough for the books, and the the system is kind of nice, and it's. I think this is the kind of thing that's really cool to have for storytellers, because if you're playing a Tremere in Dark Ages, where the clan is finding its footing, it's it's obvious that some characters would want to create their own paths, uh, because that's that's the sort of thing that's happening. Uh, you also have a new path, Perdo Magica, uh, which um, I th- uh, is supposed to be Latin for destroy magic. I don't know about Magica. I do know that Perdo does mean to destroy. Um, so I, I, I think the Latin here is is okay, but uh, you know more about Latin yeah, than I do. Uh, oh, I, I wouldn't be able to tell her. I'll, I didn't look into it to be to be perfect. But yeah, but yeah it's it's... The thing is that usually you put an adjective at the end. So, so again, Ars Magica means the the art of of magic or magical arts. So, so so it really should be Magica Perdo or or Perdo. Or, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I I didn't really look at it from a grammatical point of view. But uh, <laughs> okay, uh, so there are several new rituals. There's a bit on gargoyles and you ro- and you wrote for the gargoyles. Uh, which is dedicated to uh, servitude, 
which you know I, I really like because the way they've described gargoyles is that they're totally inhuman, but at the same time they, they don't have much in the way of their own personalities, uh, yet they're not fully sentient. So having this road that's dedicated to servitude makes sense in order to give them some kind of morality. You have new thaumaturgically created creatures and a bit of, of rules on uh, mortal magicians. Yeah. Uh, to take the path, Paromagica, it, it makes sense because it allows the Tremere to counter uh, specific Tremere thematogy and hermetic magic and with a lot of difficulty uh, other types of magic. So it makes sense for them to have to have created this path, especially because they obviously say that the path that they create are an adaptation of their mortal magics. And once again, going back to Ars Magica, you do have counter magic there mm. um, where, where you have uh, a specific... Uh, sector of magic dedicated to working with magic, so meta magic. Uh, the rituals are generally very uh, interesting or very practical. It it makes sense in most cases. You can see it makes sense to have these rituals for the survival uh, of Clan Tremere, except the crucible of sympathetic agony, which just seems unnecessarily gratuitous. That's the one that's connected to the picture. Yeah, I thought yeah, was that one. Yeah, pornographic. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It, I, I don't know why you would want to use that one. Uh, like, wh yeah, when can, is it needed? When when they wanted it? It's, yeah. I can see the idea of being able to torture someone without dealing them physical damage yeah. so that you can keep on torturing them. It's just, it seems gratuitous in the way the ritual is described. It's like, did we really need that? Um, I love the ritual the Bronze Head speaks because uh, at, at uh, the time in medieval uh, times, it was believed that such um, scholarly or, or magical luminaries as Albertus Mag uh, Magnus and Robert Bacon, they had such talking... Yeah bronze or brass heads which so it's really cool that they tie into an actual belief from the times of the magical brazen head that can speak yeah yeah i now that you mention it i, I really didn't think about it but but yeah it's uh when you tie stuff into to historical beliefs and stuff like that it's it's a really good thing uh and you you could of course like did did the tremere get it from uh from the mortals or did the mortals get it from the tremere like you, you can always yeah, exactly. do stuff like that. Uh, yeah, and it, th this really illustrates that you don't have to be uh, go all that uh, far to find ideas. If you just do some research into beliefs and practices in the Middle Ages, you're going to find a lot of stuff you can use for uh, the magics of Clan Tremere, just based off of what people at the time believed. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, I guess we're going to come back to this when we talk about uh, the creatures that they, they have created. But... but like the the fantastical stuff that people believe not only with with things like dragons and and unicorns and stuff like that but also um, people living in faraway countries who had their their faces in their chests and they didn't have any heads and stuff like that uh, oh yeah like why isn't one of those uh, uh either at simish or tremere creation like why why do they go with this weird uh goose-headed wolf thing that is mentioned both in the introductory story and and as one of the creations like the, there is or there are enough weird things in medieval mythology um to to have fun with without going even farther um and and i feel that like when you do this again it, it turns into more of a fantasy game that than it has to be so 
if if you want to use these creatures, then then go ahead. But but I would probably look up more uh, more <laughs> historical is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyway. More historical um, like sources or or inspirations instead, and just reflavor the the mechanics for them. Yeah, basically just look up uh, medieval travelogues, which were often yeah. not written by people who had actually traveled, but by people making a lot of crap up uh, and then other people repeating that. Because that's where you get, like you said, these stories of, of people with their faces and their chests mm. and, and weird things. It feels to me with those thaumaturgical creatures, it feels like uh, the author went, okay... The Tsimish have their flesh-crafted monstrosities, so I'm going to try to at least match it or possibly even one-up it and just show how messed up the Tremere thaumaturgy is. And it's kind of like, did you really need yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, did did they really need this or could they, like you said, just have gone with what people at the time historically uh, believed? So that that one is a bit of a miss for me, the, the, the weird-ass creatures. Um one thing that I really loved was the rituals of the malign humors, because once again, it taps into medieval beliefs, obviously. Um, the, the people, the scholars of the medieval uh, world, the, uh, the doctors yeah. and the physicians, they really, really believed in the four humors of the body and how they affected people. And this was a belief that was held into like the 17th century. So uh, yeah, for, for yeah, that's a time. Yeah. really strong one. Yeah, and, and the ideas of of ill vapors being able to affect you and make you sick that that kind of lasted into the 19th century in places even like when when London uh, had what was it was it diphtheria or one of one of all these uh, cholera. cholera yeah cholera. thanks when when they had uh, one of their many outbreaks of, of cholera, one of the explanations were, was often because it was the bad vapors from the River Thames, which in a way it was, but also it wasn't. So uh, <laughs> It was the River Thames that was the yeah. problem, just not the vapors. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, that's, uh, and, and again, like tie it into stuff. And, 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 and we both mentioned it before, that none of us really care if you turn it up to 11, but base it on something historical and, and real life and it's often going to be a lot more interesting yeah i mean i mean that is that's the whole thing why uh, i think that that uh dark ages vampire is such an interesting game is because it's supposed to be set in our history but with the supernatural being present so tying it into beliefs of the time of the supernatural mm. just makes it that much cooler makes it come alive if you can say that yeah. about a vampire <laughs> game uh, makes it come alive much so much more um you don't need to uh to go out of your way to invent uh fantastical stuff when people did have these beliefs and i mean if you just if you want to to have craziness there were some crazy beliefs. There was the uh, the belief of the, um, I think it was called a Bonacon, which was able to project from its ass burning shit yeah. that covers a huge area. We're talking like acres of ground. Yeah. I mean, have the Tremere uh, mountain expedition find one of those and have that as a defensive uh, installment. Because, you know, fire against vampires. Yeah. And yeah. and you will have your weird stuff, which is uh, this bull that projects a huge 
area of burning yeah, shit yeah. as a defense mechanism. Yeah, it, yeah. Now that you mention it, it, it would be a really cool idea if if they had a menagerie of of basically either captured or created uh, mythological uh, animals in instead of this this weird kind of Frankensteinian uh, inventions because it it would be a lot more. Um, a lot more historical and a lot more interesting, as you say, or as you mentioned, because there are some really weird ones out there. Yeah, I mean, it, it also, it, it kind of uh, treads on Klansimish's shtick yeah. and makes Klansimish less uh, unique. So so it's it's kind of like, Klansimish, stay in your lane. Yeah. Uh, and when, with you mentioning Frankenstein, I, I think it's also, this would be really cool if it was set in the 19th century because at that point you had the yeah. idea of taking yeah. living things and combining them then it would fit with the times it doesn't fit with the medieval times because you didn't have the idea of of stitching various creatures together and animating them that was uh, a trope of another time yeah that, that's a really good point and and now that you mentioned it 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 would be kind of cool to to kind of counter the if if the Tzmish get a kind of body horror almost Cthulian or or Cenobite creations then mm. then you could have um if not for real then at least as a propaganda weapon the the Tremere creating these like unicorns and another more noble uh, beasts to oh, to dis- yeah. defend themselves to to show that well look we're we're the good guys we have we have all these these nice things to to wage war with and our gargoyles are really nice and and well behaved whereas the uh, the the schlachta and uh, the war ghouls of the uh, Tzimish, they're just horrible and and terrifying and ooh they're bad people so so that's why we fight them and not because we torture and and capture them and and do all, all kinds of horrible things to them no 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 that is we're, a we're the good guys. really that's a really cool idea because yeah at this point the Tremere are waging a war of, of um, survival of propaganda yeah. where, where they want to uh, to ingratiate themselves with vampiric society so I I love that idea of them coming with like you said look at our gargoyles they will I mean we can give you a gargoyle and they will serve you mm. and we have a unicorn fighting on our side, a majestic creature or a, a griffin, which is obviously a noble beast yeah. uh, used on heraldry. Yeah. Whereas, look at what the Tzimish have on their side. Those must be minions of yeah. hell. And they would then be able to ingratiate themselves even more with the at least pseudo-Christian uh, clans that are fighting yeah. Clan Ventru. So that is a really, really cool idea. I, I really like mm. that. That's something that I might want to uh, want to use if I ever do anything yeah, regarding the Tremere yeah. at this time. Uh, so yeah, um, we end with Chapter 7, <laughs> which describe four other Tremere Chantries. Um, it felt a little bit like filler to me, but I can see why at least Paris and Vienna were included, because they are very important to the whole story of Clan mm. Tremere. But what did you think of these short descriptions of... Uh, of the other chantries, I, I do agree that they feel a bit like filler, and uh, but but I don't mind that they have other chantries in it as well. And as you mentioned, they, they tie into the story, and and it's also like good to know where other chantries in in Europe are, where other major chantries are, uh, if if you want to go with what's canon. Um, I, again, like just having a list of stuff of of facts wouldn't be uh, a bad thing to have. Um, 
I I don't know. In in some ways, I I would almost want to have a bit more on them, uh, like make make the in character stuff a bit shorter and replace it with with more basic facts, and and you could perhaps have a bit more uh, detail and and kind of more useful information uh, on. Uh, on on the other chantry, so that if if you want to go there instead, like Moron or like is the defenses same in every chantry, or or is something different in in one place or another, or is is one chantry more specialized in something than than other stuff like that? <coughs> uh, oh yeah, that's a that's a really good point. But, yeah, but yeah, I I again, it's it's good enough, but it could probably have been better. Yeah, uh, so. It's time to uh, to judge this book. So historically, it doesn't tie much into mortal history, but uh, we talked about how it could have tied in to mortal beliefs, uh, superstitions, uh, beliefs about magic a little bit more than it does. Uh, we've also mentioned the clothes worn by some of the characters yeah. uh, and the mistakes that they made uh, when they designed the interior of Sirius. Yeah. So... Um, you know, historically, I, I think that that they missed some opportunities yeah. here. Yeah, it is. It, it is overall. I like the way they described it, and you mentioned it that it it a lot of the things on how everyday business is run could be used for uh, for mortal uh, holdings as well. Uh, there there are some, uh, and I didn't mention it, but but the kind of. I, I really like the kind of, of mood they're setting. Like they're mentioning the training room uh, where uh, mortals and ghouls have been training for for years and years and years and how bad they smell. And they mentioned that the, yeah. the floors and walls are covered in, um, in, in uh, basically uh, straw-filled mattresses or, or uh, straw-filled uh, canvas sacks and stuff like that. And... Straw is organic, so you need to replace it every once in a while. Oh, Otherwise, yeah. it's not only going to rot; it's going to smell really bad. So, yeah, that that room probably does smell really bad. Um, one thing, though, though, that I feel kind of goes into uh, a, a lot of other tropes, and it's it's the kind of the the wasting of uh, or destruction of of stuff. Uh, you you often yeah. have like if if someone has been tied up and you see in a movie and, and someone comes up and just cuts the rope away, that, that's an expensive <laughs> piece of equipment. You wouldn't, you wouldn't cut it away. You would use it, it like a lot of things that did, did you watch a certain Linda yeah, Bates I, video? I did. And I, 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 I uh, know it from, from other, it's been, it's, it's a quite common topic in, uh, yeah. around the campfires when you go reenacting and, and it's the same, like, People burning or ripping up parchments. Uh, parchment is basically leather, so it's really tough, and that's why you used it because it lasts through the ages. Uh, so it's going to be really hard to rip up. That might work if you're a, a vampire with undead strength, but it's going to be really difficult to burn. It doesn't burn like paper. Uh, and so yeah. this trope kind of showed itself in. Um, in, in the waste management of uh, of Sioris, which they, they basically describe how uh, filth collectors go around and empty chamber pots, uh, and and then they have kind of a tunnel that goes out uh, out into uh, or, or a chute more like it that goes into the, uh, the big yeah castle. the big chasm surrounding the, the castle, uh, and and they describe how they just 
uh, roll these barrels off the edge and in, into the chasm. And it's like, those barrels are probably quite expensive. You would, oh, yeah. if, if you have people and they're described as being like the lowest of the low and filth and nobody wants to hang around with them because they probably smell about as bad as that training room. Uh, but but those barrels are still expensive and, and you could just force those dung collectors to clean out the barrels and reuse them, especially... I'm actually thinking that, that the people for the people of the castle, the barrels are probably worth more than the people yeah, yeah, that do exactly, the dung collecting. Exactly, because making a barrel is is quite uh, it's it's difficult you, you you need what is it is it a cooper that you have to yeah, yeah. so uh, so and and coopers are skilled tradesmen uh, and if you have to like import stuff because it, that's that's one of the things that they mention is that how hard it is to get stuff up into this remote uh, this remote place and and like reuse stuff instead of just throwing them away uh, so stop yeah. wasting the waste barrels <laughs> and now that we're talking about things that we we missed earlier one thing that i really loved was uh the fact that they mentioned just how much graffiti mm. there is both uh, yes. in the form of of stuff that's been painted but also a lot of stuff has been carved and much of it is sort of lewd designs because yeah that is what soldiers yeah, do, and, and, and that is what the soldiers do. Yeah, the apprentices and, and scholars yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. so again, it's it's a very evocative and, and very, um, I, I wouldn't say moody, but it's it's a very cool uh, and and living or and unliving uh, place that you really get a feel for it. So, so I, again, I really like it. I probably won't use it in... Um, in, in a vampire game, I might, but I'm, I'm definitely going to steal a lot of it to use in a fantasy game if I run one. Yeah, I feel like you could take the map of Seoris and yeah. then use it as a wizard's or whatever tower in a fantasy game. Yeah. Either as something uh, the characters visit where there's a noble living or if they are granted a keep of their own or they build a keep of their own or as something where... You, something where you have to invade it and one place that i think it would fit even better than dungeons and dragons is probably warhammer given the descriptions that yeah. you have because in dungeons and dragons you won't have brutish mercenaries carving lewd designs yeah, uh, yeah. but in warhammer you definitely yeah. will that's that's so. a very good point yeah this is a warhammer castle no doubt it's it's obviously some kind of chaos mage who runs this place yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, I think we, we might have been a bit sidetracked when it comes to the, the, the historical stuff, but yeah. uh, if, if you've been listening to the podcast for this long and you're surprised that we get sidetracked, then I can't help you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's, let's look at it as a game resource, uh, as a game resource for Vampire rather than a game resource for, for another game, which, yeah, yeah. Uh, as we've established, it could be used for. Yeah. Um, Given its length of almost 150 pages, I would say this is only really a book for uh, completists, people who want a full collection of uh, Dark Ages books or a full collection of vampire books, or people who expect the Tremere to be a central part of a Dark Ages chronicle, either as protagonists or antagonists, such as if you're running Transylvania Chronicles. Uh, in that case, I think this book is very, very useful. It does have a lot of not just cool informa information, but also neat story hooks. Um, I think it, it could maybe have been, been shorter, but at the same time, I think if, if you want to run something with the Tremere in Dark Ages, um, this is a good buy. 
Yeah, it, it is a very good resource for that. It it has basically everything you need with with the clan structure and and how backstabby they are and where else in Europe you can find them and, and everything else like that. So yeah, if if you're running a Tremere centric game, uh, either as antagonist or protagonists, it's uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely recommend it. Yeah, but at the same time, it is not as universally useful as a lot of other books. Yeah, that's so. True. This is really a, a very focused book, and you can debate the merits and flaws of making a book that is so focused, but what it's written for, which is being a, a, a Tremere book, it works for that very, very well. Yeah, it is. It does. All right, so the next book we're looking at is the last Libello Sanguinis book, Thieves in the Night, which covers Malkavian, Nosferatu, and Ravnos. And as mentioned, SideQuests is on a holiday for a while, so it'll be two weeks until you next hear from us. However, we're always available on our Facebook page, and if you want to support the podcast with a little extra, we also have a Patreon. So Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Uh, no, I just want to thank our listeners. It's been really cool going on this journey with you, and I can see that we are still gaining members in the Facebook group, which I think is really, really cool. Uh, and hopefully at some point we can all see each other uh, somewhere sometime. Don't know where, don't know when. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been really cool, and thank you to everyone. Even Niels Martin. Oh. <laughs> and so, with the one last quote from a song, it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell, and see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>